Well, uh, at AC Creek, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, and on Sundays, we take our text from our upcoming Wednesday, and we usually cover a verse or two, or sometimes even a whole chapter. But today, we're gonna cover a whole book of the Bible. (laughs) Man, you guys are in for it. This is great. So strap on your safety belts. The whole honking book of Obadiah. (laughs) <laughs> Some of you are like, oh boy, this could be bad. Um, one pastor uh, made this statement. He was known for long-winded sermons, you know, and, and uh, he, he said, hey, don't worry, everybody. We'll have you home in time for the Super Bowl. And they're like, pastor, the Super Bowl's next week. And he said, exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, but this, good news for you, the book of Obadiah is uh, small but mighty. Uh, It's called a minor prophet, but I would say it's got a major message and one that is worthy of our study today. And it's in the scriptures for inspiration. All scripture is given for, you know, by inspiration, God breathed for instruction and correction and reproof, all these things. It's good for us to read the book of Obadiah. There's some good things we're to learn from this. And um, even though it's a minor prophet with a major message, only 21 little verses, so it's not a long book. But, um, but the, the cool thing is, is um, it's got kind of a heavy theme, but, but it's a good reminder for us of what not to do. Uh, and it has to do with, um, in fact, the theme of the book of Obadiah is the doom of Edom. And some of you might say, Edom, what does Edom have to do with anything? Um, well, it's interesting. Edom sort of gets a, a record in the Bible. Uh, it's not the record you'd wanna have. But of all the nations, you know, if you think about all the nations God talks about in the Bible that he's gonna judge and pour out his wrath upon, you know, you know Israel, he, he talks a lot about Israel because they're his children, the children of Israel and their rebellion. So you do get a lot about the judgment of Israel and Judah and the Northern 10 tribes, Ephraim. Um, but but uh, who gets the second uh, most judged and uh, talked about uh, nation of God's wrath being poured out on them as it turns out? the Edomites, more than anybody else. They were arguably the most judged people outside of the people of Israel in the Bible. The prophets foretold the doom of Edom more than any other nation in all the pages of scripture. Um, Now you might ask why. Uh, Obadiah sums it up all in a nutshell why they're uh, given to such doom. Um, And and he's gonna explain uh, why all this is gonna go down the way it is and stuff. But you kind of have to understand the Edomites before you can really understand the book of Obadiah. So I wanna go through a little history of the Edomites and talk about that first. Then we'll dive into the book, the 21 verses. So um, when it comes to Edom, uh, who are the Edomites? Well, the Bible tells us. Um, In the book of Genesis, you know, you go all the way back to uh, Genesis chapter 12, where Abraham, at that time his name was Abram, and he gets this great, uh, you know, blessing from God. You know, the Abrahamic covenant, where God makes a covenant, says, "Out of your seed, Abraham, we're going to make a mighty nation out of you." The Lord says, and uh, and it's going to be through you and Sarah. Well, if you recall, uh, Abraham and Sarah waited and they waited, uh, but when they got up in their 80s, they're kind of like, "Okay, we need to help the Lord out. This isn't happening." a child, you know. So Sarah says, hey, here's my young handmaid Hagar from Egypt. Uh, Abraham, sleep with her, she'll have a baby, and then we'll see the promise of the Lord. And Abraham's like, cool, whatever. And he goes into the tent and uh, they, she becomes pregnant. And she gives birth to a, a son named Ishmael. And Ishmael uh, is uh, the father of the Arab nations. It was a big mistake that Abraham had made because that, he was trying to help the Lord along. Whenever you're doing that, oh, Lord, let me give you a little help here. I'm gonna make these things happen. You always end up in trouble. But the Lord says, Abraham, that wasn't, <coughs> excuse me, the promised child that I was talking about. It's gonna be through you and Sarah. 
And um, so eventually, in, in her 90s, she becomes pregnant and gives birth to Isaac. And Isaac would be the father of the Jewish side of that. So the Arabs were Ishmael, Jews were I- Isaac. Well, after Isaac, his son, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and then there was Jacob. Uh, and Jacob would be the next father. But that's an interesting thing because it technically should have been his older brother, Esau. Uh, Jacob and Esau, Esau was the older brother. But remember, uh, Isaac was able, to, uh, pardon me, Jacob was able to trick Isaac the father into uh, giving away the blessing and the birthright uh, to Esau, away from Esau, to Jacob. And uh, Esau said, I, I'm gonna kill you. He said that to his brother who tricked him out of his birthright and blessing. And, but that's the Lord's plan. The plan of the Lord was to say, I'm gonna use Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then out of Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons will be the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the way it would work. Well, Esau was so furious. He just said, I'm gonna kill you. And so Jacob runs for his life. And uh, he runs up to a place called Haran where he goes to Uncle Laban. Remember the story, Rachel, Leah, uh, the whole story of his two weddings. But it took just about 15 years for all that to transpire. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Esau, he, he, Jacob's off, you know, miles and miles away at, at, at Haran. And Esau says, I'm gonna settle in a, a southern part of Israel and make that my kingdom and my people group. And so he, from the southern tip of the, of the Dead Sea to the northern trip, tip of the Red Sea, uh, Esau sort of claimed his territory there. And then the Bible tells us about Esau. Um, you know, he's not a forgotten guy. Um, and uh, the Bible tells us, in fact, in Genesis 36, one, it tells us now these are the generations of Esau. And then it says, who is um, Edom? That's what it says in Genesis 36, one. These are the generations of Esau who is Edom. And then also Genesis 36 verses eight and nine, thus dwelt Esau in Mount Seir, which is the old name of Edom. Uh, before it was Edom, it was called Mount Seir. Um, and he says, Esau is Edom, and these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. So what we understand here is the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. Now, some of you that are history buffs, you'll bump into something a little strange. Um, the Edomites are often treated historically as Arab people, but the Arabs were technically the descendants of Ishmael, if you remember the story I just told, and not the descendants of Esau. But why are the uh, Edomites often lumped in with Arabs? Here's why. Esau married Ishmael's daughter. And so by marriage, Esau, they were already brothers, you know, uh, cousins or whatever. But when they, when they married uh, together, it sort of lumped the Edomites in with the Arab nations. And that's why sometimes historically, you'll see people lump them together. But all that to say, um, if you kind of look at a map where e, you know, Esau and his people settled, the, the kingdom of Edom was this area in red. I don't know if you guys can see very well there, but you online probably see better than here. But, uh, but the, you can see that there's the, the Dead Sea, that's the Salt Sea there in Israel. Uh, from the southern tip of the, of the Dead Sea to the northern tip of the, of the Red Sea. Um, that's the, the kingdom of Edom. So if you can picture in Bible times, the Edomites uh, and the Israelis were constantly going at it in battle. Um, even though they were technically brothers, uh, as they called each other, they hated each other. Um, and all that uh, said, uh, they were great enemies. Now, um, interestingly, the name uh, Esau is derived from the, 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 the Hebrew word, the, the word red. Why is red always associated with Esau? Well, it's an interesting thing because um, uh, in, in the Bible, it associates Esau with red in three main connections. 
When he was born, it said that he had a red complexion. Um, I don't know what that means, but he was a red little baby uh, when he came out. Uh, Genesis 25, 25. Um, also, do you remember what color the stew was when he sold his, his birthright uh, uh, to his brother with, for a pot of stew? It was a red stew, the Bible says. But even more importantly, this whole country of Edom in the map here, that region looks red. Uh, it's really funny. So um, Edom meaning red or a muddy red color, uh, reddish sandstone, that, that is this region of the world. It, it looks very red, especially at certain times of the day. One of my favorite parts of going to this region of the world is when the sun starts to go down at night, everything just turns bright red. The, the sandstone and all that. Um, by the way, if you, if you go with us to Israel, which we've been trying to get a trip together, but the corona has kept us out of Israel. Uh, um, but we're, we're still planning trips, you know. Uh, they're just, we just kept having to kick the can down the road a little bit. But, um, but um, this, the southern tip where it hits the Red Sea, that's, we take a day off in our 15 days of travel. We take a day of rest. The Lord kind of came up with that plan. Um, so on the seventh day, we take a day of rest. And guess where we rest? We go to the northern tip of the Red Sea. Here's some photos from one of our recent trips. Um, I'm leading worship there at the Red Sea and we do a little Bible study in the morning and then a bunch of us went scuba diving there in the Red Sea. It was kind of fun. That's Micah and a few of the, and that's the, Oh, you know, the Lawton family, some of those guys are getting ready to go for a little dive. But it's, it's an amazing place. It's, it's sort of this neat tropical little beach town. Um, and it's kind of a fun place to take a, a rest. And no wonder the Edomites claimed that as their territory. Um, it was very, it's a very neat place. But um, Edom, the Edomites would, would um, uh, you know, occupy this whole region. And, um, and, and there were three major cities that the Edomites uh, had, Basra, known for its style and fashion, um, which is kind of funny. Uh, you don't think of ancient times. Isn't it weird, by the way, when you think of the North American history, um, what was going on here in North America when all these kingdoms of the Bible were built up, these big civilizations? The answer, teepees. Um, you know, they're like, there were teepees and little adobe houses, no big cities or civilizations. Um, that, that, that wouldn't come till much, much later. But back in this region of the world, there were massive cities like Basra that was sort of like the Paris of the Middle East where people came for silks and fabrics and, and spices and all kinds of things. But it was the fashion center of the, that region of the world. The second city, <coughs> excuse me, was Timon. Uh, and Timon was known for its philosophical and intellectual center. These were the brainiacs of that region. And then the, the, the Edomites also had the, one of the greatest strongholds of ancient times called Petra. So the day before we went to the Red Sea and swam around and did some scuba diving and stuff, the day before we did that, about oh, 150 miles north, um, we, we were up in Jordan and we'd go through Petra. And I gotta show you this because this is part of the Edomite empire. Um, these are a bunch of Athey Creekers. We're hiking through Petra. We, we hike about 13 miles in the morning uh, here in Petra and just uh, see tons of amazing things. The water system, the ancient, ancient little, the rain would fall off these cliffs and fall in this little aqueduct and water would flow down. One inch of rain per year in Petra, but the ancient people that lived there uh, could live for just one inch of rain the year and be perfectly fine because they had these cisterns carved out of this red you know, sandstone. But um, you hike through this one mile long seek 
this cliff uh, crack, and then you come to these, uh, these, these facades carved by the Nabataeans. These, these weren't here, by the way, when the Edomites were here. These uh, facades came later uh, by the Nabataeans, um, but it is an amazing place. If you're ever in that region of the world, you gotta go see Petra. It's a little pain to get there, but once you're there, it's kind of one of the most amazing things you, you could actually see that have been made, but it's this huge, huge city. Once you get through the mile seek, then you hike for the rest of the miles, five miles, six miles, through this rock city fortress, Petra. Um, you can ride a camel if you really want to, um, or a donkey. Um, but uh, but what we, we hike through there and it just, it just goes on and on, these tombs and, and temples and things that you can uh, explore uh, that are just kind of amazing. But the Edomites, this is where they, they, they had their, one of their strongest cities. Uh, Esau's people settled here in the rock. They called it the cleft of the rock where um, nobody could attack them. So safe did they feel in this region because just, oh, by the way, this is the, the see that step at the door? Uh, you think, how tall is a person? Well, there's a person standing in that door. I don't know if you can see that. Um, it's a giant, this is a giant facade. It's the picture, you're thinking, oh, that's a nice little thing. No, it's, see, there's a person standing on the step there. Um, it's, it's humongous uh, and it's kind of fun. Uh, there's been movies filmed at this one, Transformers, I don't know. Uh, but it's, it's just something to see. But, but th- there's just tons of this stuff carved in the rock. But the Edomites settled, and, and by the way, when the sun goes down, this rock just turns bright red. It's hard to even explain. I should have brought some pictures of that. But all that to say, the Edomites settled here, but, but what was interesting is um, before the 1800s, um, there, was, um, there was a doubt whether this place even existed. It was sort of like the lost city of Atlantis. Well, a guy came along, um, his name, Johann Ludwig Burkhardt, who uh, back in 1812 was trying to figure out does this city, this lost city of Petra really exist? They thought it was like Atlantis or some mythological city, but this guy was exploring this region of the world over in what is today modern day Jordan. And there were, uh, there were, he was getting closer and closer, but the, the, you know, the Bedouins and their tents and their sheep and their Mercedes, they were like, of course they, don't, they have a Mercedes now, but they didn't, but anyway, he, um, he, uh, he, he, he went in and he, he tricked them. In his studies, he realized the people that were supposed to be linked to the lost city of Petra were people that worshiped Aaron, um, Moses' brother. And so he kind of came in with his turban and kind of acted very you know, nomadic. And, and he said, I want to worship Aaron in the, in the city of Petra. Well, that was the password. If you wanted in, uh, these Arabs, they had to, by their religion, let this Johann Ludwig Burkhardt go in. So they brought him into the lost city of Petra. And that was the end of the, the secret uh, at that point because this Swiss uh, explorer found it, brought an artist with him and did all these artist renditions of Petra. It was amazing stuff. You can look it up. It's kind of a fascinating story. And then after that, uh, we all came as tourists and see it and stuff like that. But anyway, you say, what does this have to do with Obadiah? Well, this, this strong fortress city of Petra um, was part of the problem with the Edomites in their overconfidence and pride. Um, their three main cities that I told you, their fashion, their intellect, and their security. Those were the big things that the Edomites were prideful about. And so when we get to the book of Obadiah, we start to realize um, uh, the Lord has it in for the Edomites. Why is that? They're, the part of the story um, is the Edomites, of course, Jacob and Esau weren't best friends to start off with. But shortly after that, the Edomites would be always haters of Israel. 
And they hated the Jews, even though they were technically brothers. And now a couple things that you should know about in the Bible, um, the Bible, uh, God forbade the Israelis to hate the Edomites. Um, if you look it up, it's Deuteronomy 23, verses seven and eight, where God says, you know, I forbid you to abhor the Edomites because he's your brother. He's your brother, you're supposed to be nice to them. Even though the Edomites, did you remember when your, your mom and dad did that to you when you were a kid? It's like your, your brother or sister was pulling your hair and punching the face and then your mom would say to you, be nice to your brother or your sister. Remember that? Some of your brothers and sisters were really good at that. Uh, I call them Eddie Haskell, but that's a whole other story. But anyways, that's the problem. The Edomites were constantly doing horrible things to the Israelis, but the Lord was saying, Israel, be nice to the Edomites. That's kind of a funny part of the story. But eventually the Edomites were so bad at enemies, David, when David became king, he crushed the Edomites, conquered them, put garrisons throughout the land of Edom. Second Samuel chapter eight tells us about that. Um, Solomon built a port uh, there, a Southern port on the Red Sea where I showed you pictures where we were scuba diving. And he also put horse stables down there. Um, Uzziah uh, started a navy down there, Second Kings chapter 14, King Uzziah. But after King Uzziah, Ahaz, who was a, a, a king, bad king, he, he ended up losing the Edomite, uh, uh, their captor, captives, um, when he was attacked by Pekah and Reason. If you remember those guys in the Bible stories there in Second Chronicles 28. So there's a history of kind of bashing back and forth between the Edomites and the Israelis. And then Judah would never again recover Edom as a conquered people. Um, but there's something you should know. After the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC, and this is part of the deal, um, the Bible tells us uh, in several places that the Edomites rejoiced. They rejoiced at the fall of Judah. Psalm 137, seven tells us that. Um, so, so the Lord says, you rejoiced at the fall of my people. And the Lord notices that. And all throughout the prophets, that's why the Edomites get the, the bad you know, judgment from God. Um, you know, the, the prophets uh, foretold the, the demise of the Edomites. Jeremiah 49, Edom's going down. Lamentations, even Solomon writes about the fall of the Edomites. Ezekiel, if you remember a few months ago, we were studying Ezekiel 25, where the Edomites are going down, the prophet said. Joel and Amos and Obadiah, all three of our recent uh, studies have shown um, that the Edomites are going down. So the big question is why does God in his word make the Edomites such a big deal? Um, and I think it's because of there's some lessons that God wants us in modern times to learn from this ancient conflict. And this ancient people group, the Lord says, I want you to learn from these people. That's why I put them in my word so that people in Portland can read the story and know what's going on. And, and he makes a major deal out of it. When God makes a big deal out of something over and over again, we should probably sit up and take note. Wouldn't you agree? Um, so the book of Obadiah, though it's small, 21 verses, it's sort of the, the cap on top that basically seals the deal for us on the Edomites. And that's why Obadiah is, is such an important deal. So let's take a look. Verse one here in uh, Obadiah says, um, the vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye and let us rise up against her in battle. Man, when the Lord says, hey, uh, we're, we're gonna rise up in battle against, um, you, you gotta kind of say, oh man, this, you got a problem. God's raising up battle against you. Now, a couple things I haven't talked about. Who is this prophet Obadiah? The answer, we have no idea. 
There are 12 Obadiahs in the Bible, we think. Um, now, are some of them the same Obadiah? We don't know. Uh, we don't know much about Obadiah. All we know is the meaning of his name. Obadiah means servant of Jehovah. Um, that's all we know about this prophet. So uh, it's funny because most of the other prophets we know a little bit about, but um, we really don't know anything about this. And we also don't know the timing for sure of this book, like when it was written or when Obadiah even prophesied against Edom. But there's a couple hints and scholars have deduced the timing to be around 585 BC. Now I wouldn't die on that battlefield and say for sure it's that, but let me just give you one of the evidences. I'll show you another one in a few minutes. But it's the language of verse one that stands out there in verse one when it says, we have heard a rumor from the Lord an ambassador is sent among the heathen. In the original Hebrew, this matches one of the other prophets and it puts the timing at an interesting place. It's Jeremiah uses the same sort of phrasing in talking about the judgment of God upon the Edomites. And Jeremiah gave that prophecy right after the fall of Jerusalem. Um, he speaks about that. And so many scholars say verse one gives us a hint that maybe Obadiah was a contemporary with Jeremiah after the fall, right after the fall. Remember the fall of Jerusalem by the Babylonians was 586 BC. So they say probably around 585 is when Obadiah prophesied this. And I'll show you another smidgen of evidence of that here in a few minutes. So some people dated around that time period of the fall of Jerusalem. But look what the Lord says in verse two. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen, thou art greatly despised. This is an interesting question. Like, are you despised by God? Does God hate people? Um, the answer is yes, by the way. Speaking of Jacob and Esau, the Lord said, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. That's what the Lord says. I'll tell you some other things the Lord hates here in a few minutes. But um, as it turns out, um, the Lord says, you are small and you are despised. Now, we could also make the argument that the Lord is saying you're despised by the other nations around you. And, and that is true too. Historically, the Edomites became despised because they were so hoity-toity and wealthy and, and they were all safe in their little stronghold. And they started to rest on their laurels and be sort of cocky, if you can understand. Sort of like, yeah, we're better than everybody else. Um, and they sort of had an attitude. And so people started not liking the Edomites for the, their uh, attitude. Like, you know, you, you, can, you can even see that today in certain cultures and people groups. I won't say anything about those cultures or people groups, but you know, some, are, some people are more prideful than others. Um, a lot of people in the world think we Americans are the prideful ones. And that could be very true. Um, we can talk about that too in a minute. But um, they felt basically um, secure and safe. And so they were despised by the surrounding nations. And then the Lord now in this book of Obadiah, he's gonna list seven sins of the Edomites. Here's the seven reasons why the Lord says, I'm gonna thump you. You're going down. You're gonna be history, literally. Um, is because of these seven sins. And the first sin is that most dastardly of sins, according to the Bible, the sin of pride. And we see that in verses three through six. It says in verse three, it says, the pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, that thou dwellest in the clefts of the rock, that's Petra, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, who shall bring me down to the ground? Though you exalt thyself as the eagle, what country would exalt themselves as an eagle? That's crazy. <clears throat> um, and, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, 
Thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers uh, came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? This is King James' way of saying, you guys are prideful. You, you think you're in your cleft of your rock there, safe in Petra and all that, but, um, but you're, you're gonna fall. You know, you're big. You think you're big like the eagle or nesting among the stars, but he says, I'm gonna bring you down from your high horse. Uh, almost like the bigger they are, the harder they fall. That's kind of what the Lord's saying here. And he's saying, you know, you've rested on your laurels and even if a group of thieves come in, they're gonna be able to rip you off. Like this is an insult really to this prideful group who's saying, we've got it all dialed in and we're safe. And the Lord's saying, you're not safe. You think you're safe, but you're not safe. And so this issue of pride is what the Lord says is, is the first thing that's wrong. And by the way, of all the sins, pride seems to be one of the most dastardly. You know, the Bible says pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We know that Satan himself, who was Lucifer in heaven, uh, his sin was that of pride. He's lifted up with pride. And that's why Satan actually fell. Um, in Proverbs chapter six, uh, the Lord says uh, this uh, about, uh, about these things. And this gets back to what God actually hates. Uh, Proverbs six, verse 16 says, these six things doth the Lord hate. Um, yea, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, that's the very first thing. A proud look. And then the rest of it's pretty bad as well. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brothers. Man, this is a list worthy of thinking about. Lord, I don't wanna be a part of these things that you hate, that are an abomination to you. But isn't it interesting, the very top of the list is a proud look. Not just a, a proud heart, but just even having the look of pride. What does prideful look look like? not sure that's easily defined. What does a proud look look like? But you know where I, I worry? Uh, when I start watching the Olympics. Does anybody watch the Olympics anymore? No? Uh, well, when we used to watch the Olympics, um, <laughs> um, one of the things I started seeing, I forget, maybe it was like three or four Olympics ago. I remember seeing um, the attitude of the American athletes versus so many of the other world athletes. And it was the, this, the way that we carried ourselves. And even if we didn't win, there was still this, this proud look. And, uh, and it, it made me uncomfortable. You know, we had American athletes, you know, running across the finish line in track and field, turning around and going, okay, come on, everybody, you can catch up after me. That's what a proud look looks like. You're being, uh, you know, overly confident and, and demeaning to your, like, it, 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 you know, meanwhile, there were other humble competitors that would often win and the proud American got very humbled. Um, a proud look. Um, there was a young pastor story that I've heard where he was a new pastor and he was really kind of insecure, but he, you know, he's new con you know, the congregation was seeing the new pastor and he came walking in to the service and everybody's looking at their new pastor and he walked in with a very smart look and he walked in with his Bible and kind of like, you know, very authoritative, he walked in and then he, you know, he got up on the pulpit and this was his first sermon. But you know how sometimes when you're public speaking and you're not really used to it, 
he got all disheveled and he sort of lost his place and he, he just, it just kind of fell apart uh, there at the pulpit. He was just, he was fumbling through his notes and, and uh, everybody just felt so awkward. And, and eventually he just really got so frustrated. He finally just said, um, you're dismissed. And he, and he walked out with his head low and he walked out depressed and sad because he totally choked. Well, the old man deacon leaned over to his wife and said, if he would have walked in the way he walked out, he would have walked out the way he walked in. <laughs> I thought that's pretty good. Um, that's the, the proud look. The Lord says, I hate the proud look. That's the problem with the Edomites. They had a, a proud look, but also notice it says, the pride in thy heart hath deceived thee. Do you understand that self-conceit is nothing but self-deceit? When you think of yourself more highly than you should, that's called pride, but you're deceiving your own self, the Bible says. How many of us are deceived into thinking we're better than we really are? Well, that was the Edomites, a good warning for, uh, for us to be aware of. Uh, be careful of this issue of pride. The Lord hates that. And, uh, and this is one of the, the, well, this is the first sin of the Edom, Edomites that God says, this is why you're going down, you're prideful. The second sin of Edom is they were ganging up on Israel. Um, the word here is they made a confederation or a confederacy of nations. They'd stir up other nations against Israel and sort of tag team to thump on the people of Israel. We see that in verses seven <clears throat> through nine. Verse seven says, and all the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom? <coughs> Excuse me, and understanding out of the, uh, the Mount of Esau? Uh, that understanding out of the Mount of Esau is, remember the intellectual part of the Edomites I was talking about? Um, the Lord says, you're, you're very smart, but I'm gonna destroy your smartness. That's, that's what he's saying there. Um, verse nine, and thy mighty men, O Teman, uh, shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the Mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. That is strong words against these Edomites. You're gonna be slaughtered. And it's not just anybody, your mightiest of men. Um, there's a Hebrew word that's interesting. When you look it up in the Hebrew, the word here for dismayed in the King James, uh, where it says the mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed. There's no English word that's the equivalent of the Hebrew word, but the Hebrew word is a very strong and kind of horrifying word. Um, if you look it up in the dictionary, the word that, that's used there literally means terrified, shattered, and broken. Terrified, shattered, and broken. And this is the mightiest of it. It'd be like, can you imagine like our toughest soldiers, like our SEAL Team 6? And you find a SEAL Team 6 guy who's shattered, terrified, and broken. That's what the Lord said. That's what's gonna happen to your mightiest of soldiers. He says to the Edomites, the, the area they thought they were strongest in, the Lord says, that's going down. You're going down, very important, pretty heavy. So um, because you've ganged up on Israel, the Lord's saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take your, your mightiest and your smartiest, uh, smartest uh, smarty pants um, out of, of, uh, of the Edomites. The, the third sin of Edom was violence. And I'm not gonna say just any violence. They were particularly violent against the Jews. Um, the whole Bible records that, by the way, all the Edomites and their dealings with the Jews. Um, they were just violent toward them. Um, and it says that here, um, right here in verse 10. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. 
In the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that strangers carried away captive his forces and foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast as one of them. You were like the Babylonians who crushed the Jews, Edom, or the Assyrians who came and killed Jews and dragged them off into captivity with hooks in their noses. Um, like it was, they're getting blamed. The Edomites are saying, basically the Lord saying, you did all this stuff too, just like the other nations, but, but your violence against your brother Jacob, shame's gonna cover you because of that. By the way, the interesting thing, but speaking of Hebrew words, the word violence in Hebrew is Hamas. Isn't that interesting? Now the people of Hamas, their, their name in Arab, you know, or the Palestinians don't think of it as violence, but that's what, it's, that's what it is. It's kind of funny that that's the Hebrew word for violence, Hamas. Um, you can't make too much out of transliteration words like this, but uh, th there's some funny things. I remember years ago when Bush was the president, people made a bunch, big deal. There's the Hamas mentioned there in verse 10. And George Bush is mentioned too, because the word shame there in that verse is the word Bush. So people are like, see, George Bush, Hamas, and they made a big construct. That's always a mistake when you're using transliterated words. But, um, but it is uh, interesting. The Lord just says um, violence. And, and boy, the Jews have been, uh, whether it's the Edomites or the Hamas shooting rockets, uh, the Jews have been the victims of violence their whole existence from the time of Pharaoh uh, all the way to the present day. Um, interesting. And the Lord says, man, I, I see that. And the Lord says, I see the violence, Edom, that you uh, uh, have carried out against my people. I need you to remember, this is important. This, is, this should be something that should determine how even we as Christians think about the, the, the political uh, world and who we're voting for and stuff like that. Um, remember, the Lord says, uh, I will judge the nations according to how they treated my people, the Jews. There's actually a judgment. You know, there's a great right throne judgment. There's the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. But there's also the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And remember what that is. That's when God says, I'm gonna separate out the nations that treated my people good, and I'm gonna separate the nations that treated my people bad. And it's not gonna be good for the nations that treated them badly. Um, where did all this start? Well, way back in what I told you about Genesis 12, uh, let's revisit that, the Abrahamic covenant, uh, where God made a covenant with Abraham. He said, now the Lord said to Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee and I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing and I will bless them that bless thee, uh, thee and I will curse them or him that curseth thee and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Isn't it interesting? Anti-Semitism is so on the rise today. People just more than, um, some people are saying worse than before World War II in like the 1930s, there was anti-Semitism raging around the world and the Nazis just capitalized on that. But most people that study these things are saying it's worse today than it was then. Anti-Semitism is on the rise. For, for whatever reason, people are hating the Jews. Isn't it interesting that last sentence in this verse of the blessing to Abraham? It says, in thee, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, the question is, how are the Jews gonna bless all the families of the earth? Jesus. That's, the, that's always the right answer, right? Um, the Jews gave us the Messiah, Jesus. By the way, you could make an argument for that. That's the biggest and most powerful one, of course. But isn't it interesting if you look at what the Jews have contributed to science and medicine, comedy and art, 
Like it's, it's kind of amazing. I've actually done studies where we compared all the different people groups of nations uh, throughout history and, and what percentages the Jews have contributed. By far, the Jews have contributed to science and health, medicine and the arts and stuff by far more than any other people group in the world. So you could make the argument about the families that are being blessed through science and medicine and technology and math and like some of the brightest thinkers of the world were Jewish people um, because they're God's blessed people. But at the same time, so much of the world hates them and the Lord says, listen, I'm watching. I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those that curse you. And isn't it interesting, just with one election, our last election, we switched from one of the most kind administrations to the Jews, whether you love Trump or hate him, I'm not making an argument for or against him right now. I'm just saying the Jews felt like Trump was the most friendly president in the history of the United States. That's what their view of it was. When I was in Jerusalem, they were just like delirious with joy because Trump you know, moved the embassy into Jerusalem and acknowledged Jerusalem as the capital and said the Golan Heights belongs to the Jews. Uh, like, like amazing, they, they named streets after Trump. They, there's a train in Jerusalem, they call it the Trump train. They named it out after, like they loved him. Uh, now, now the previous administration, whether it was Obama or the next after Trump, um, Biden, you have to understand, love them or hate them. I'm not making an argument for against them, but the Biden administration is unfriendly toward Israel. Ask the Jews in Israel, do you guys think that you feel better off with this current administration? And uh, they will say absolutely no. Um, and it has to do with the Iran deal and all this stuff. This stuff we'll talk about maybe in Bible prophecy update and stuff. But, um, but man, one thing that you and I should at least factor in when we're making decisions on, in, in elections um, is how is this person gonna treat the Jews? Because the Lord says, I will judge those nations that bless you uh, and I will judge the nations that curse you accordingly. Um, the Edomites are the personification of this truth. The Edomites were a curse to the Jews from their very beginning to their very end. And the Lord says, I saw all that. And because of that, you're gonna get crushed. Um, so just a reminder, uh, God cares about his people and he loves the Jews. Don't be one of those people that uh, are against the Jews. God says, I will see that. Well, that brings us to number four on our list of sins of Edom. The next thing they did is they were rejoicing in Israel's destruction. Look at verse 12. It says, but thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither should thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. So there's that pride again. They were magnifying themselves when the Jews were in distress. They were celebrating. When the, now, now, by the way, this, this is that second indicator of when Obadiah may have been prophesying this issue because it seems that um, th it talked about the destruction of Judah. That happened in 586, the ultimate destruction. There were three waves, if you recall, three waves of destruction. But 586 was the final wave of the destroying of Jerusalem. And so most scholars say because of verse one, the phrase that was used like Jeremiah's phrase, but also verse 12 that says, man, Edom, you rejoiced when Judah was destroyed. That has to be after 586. Uh, BC. And so, so that's why they, they say this is when Obadiah prophesied is shortly thereafter. But either way, it says of the Edomites with prideful arrogance, they were celebrating and rejoicing at the destruction of Judah, which is also the destruction of Jerusalem. 
What is it about people today, even today, if Jews are hurt or killed, there's still nations that celebrate in the streets. If an IDF Israeli soldier gets taken by, you know, uh, someone uh, up on the northern border uh, by, you know, um, Lebanon or Syria or, or down south by Gaza Strip, man, there's a whole group of Muslim nations that will start celebrating in the streets. Um, by the way, because America traditionally supports Israel, did you know that when Americans go into disaster and problems, that those same nations celebrate in the same way? Um, something that you might've missed if you were old enough to be around during 9-11. And it's an interesting thing because it was on the news for about 10 seconds and then all the news agencies quickly pulled the, the footage. What was it? Well, when the two towers went down in New York City on 9-11, um, one thing that happened immediately after that and there was footage, the news people were showing it. Um, all over the Middle East, even in the streets of Jerusalem in the Palestinian areas, the Palestinians and the Arabs and the Muslims around the world were rejoicing and they were handing out candy to their children. And they were doing their whole um, real celebration in the streets and there was footage of that. Um, uh, I know people that were in Jerusalem on the day of 9-11 and they said it was crazy. Mayhem in the streets because people, you know, the, the Arab, the Muslims uh, were celebrating the demise of the two twin towers. And, and you think, well, why would anybody care? That's, that's just the nature. There's a rejoicing in other people's destruction. But the Lord says, when you do that against my people Israel, you know, what's interesting is to see our current culture and they try to cover up the violent nature of fundamentalist Muslim, Islamic religion, and sort of say, no, 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 no. Remember when George Bush said it was that peace-loving religion, Islam? That was the narrative after 9-11. You know, they were trying to, oh, it's just a, there's just a tiny fraction of crazy people out there that are fundamentalist Muslims. But, but most of them are just peace-loving you know, uh, Muslims. And, and, uh, and for years I've been saying this, now people are starting to admit what we've been saying for a long time. And that is there's, there's a lot of fundamentalist Muslims in the world. Um, I remember even back then they were saying only about 16%. Only 16% of the Muslims in the world are actually jihadists, you know, that wanna see bombs blown up in the streets and, and, and Americans and Israelis killed, only 16%. But if you do the math, and I'm not a mathematician, but there's more than 2 billion Muslims on the planet. And if you do the math, do you realize there's more fundamentalist jihadist Muslims than there are people in the United States? Um, if you do the math, and they used to say, oh, that's not true, but now pretty much everybody's starting to admit that. And you know, whether it's Afghanistan and the Taliban or the Al-Qaeda or ISIS or Boko Haram or some of these you know, groups in Indonesia, like there's, there's fundamentalist Muslims who wanna see death all over the globe. And, um, and the problem is they're the ones who were celebrating uh, when Jews are hurt. And, and the Lord says, man, I see when you're doing that celebrating, um, it's, it's interesting. By the way, um, so there's this weird thing that we do in America to cover up the fundamentalist Muslim and say, oh, they're just peace loving. Uh, we'll celebrate Ramadan in the right White House and all this stuff. Uh, they, they do that. Meanwhile, they sort of wanna make the Jews look bad. And then there's this weird thing that happened just last week. Uh, and this is all part of the same source of uh, insanity. Uh, it was a little over a week ago. Remember, remember the hostages that were taken in Texas? And, and what it was, it was a Jewish synagogue. Some guy came in there with his um, you know, weapon and he took these Jews that were worshiping in the synagogue in Texas hostage. You guys know about this? 
okay, not, not a lot of you guys uh, watch the news. That's okay, that's all right. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what happened. Um, so, so this guy goes in there and, and he takes the hostages and then he demands that a woman who's in prison be let loose. Now, when that first happened, you, you know, it's amazing how uh, news travels so fast and people start looking and Googling and stuff. Um, before they had time to take down his Facebook profile and all that stuff, he was a Muslim uh, who uh, had a real agenda, uh, anti-Semite. But the FBI, you know, um, you know, worked hard to say, oh, this isn't a, an act of terror. Um, this isn't an anti-Semitism. This is just a guy who uh, took some Jews in a synagogue hostage. It has nothing to do with Islam or Jews. Or, and this was, the, this was the narrative the FBI um, uh, actually had. In fact, um, the man held hostages for more than 10 hours. Was that last Saturday? I think it was last, a week ago Saturday. Um, uh, where um, he could uh, be heard ranting on live stream until they actually took the live stream down. Uh, that, that they would release a Pakistani neuroscientist, that's the way they said it, who was convicted of trying to kill US Army officers in Afghanistan. The FBI Special Agent DeSarno um, said the hostage taker was specifically focused on an issue not directly connected to the Jewish community. That was his public statement. There was no immediate indication that the man was any part of a broader plan, but DeSarno, the FBI agent's investigation, um, will have a global reach, he said. Well. Um, this brilliant FBI agent failed to tell us that the woman that he was from Pakistan that he was trying to get released, her name was Afia Siddiqui. Her nickname is Lady Al-Qaeda. That's what everybody's called her for years uh, when she was arrested. Maybe you even remember when that happened. Lady Al-Qaeda was her name. And she is a raging anti-Semite, hates the Jews and has been for that all her life. Um, and, uh, you know, so he, so he was in a prison, she was in a prison in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, why would the FBI, then, you know, this article came out um, uh, not about three or four days later uh, by uh, Daily Mail UK. Um, uh, FBI finally admits Texas synagogue siege was an anti-Semitic terror attack after first claiming it was not specifically related to the Jewish community. Duh. It's like, these people aren't so bright. I used to respect the FBI, but man, I gotta say, uh, what's up with the FBI the last few years? It's kind of disheartening, but I digress. Um, why are they trying to cover this stuff up and, and act like, oh, nothing to do with the Jews? Anti-Semitism is raging right now in the world, and this is something we should know about, and it is a sign of the times. But the reason this is so important for you and me is we're watching this happen, but the thing that God says about the Edomites, he says, you guys are gonna be crushed. Because not only did you, were you mean to my people, but you rejoiced when they were killed or taken off into captivity. And I saw that. And I'm gonna deal with you because of that. So the sin of rejoicing at their peril and their destruction. Number five on our list. We're getting close, almost done. Um, sins of Edom, number, number five, looting. Uh, we can apply this to the sins of Portland. Um, but let's take a look, verse 13. It says, thou shouldest, the Edomites, thou shouldest not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity, yea, thou shouldest not have looked on their affliction in their day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. In other words, whenever the Jews were in trouble or being attacked by someone else, the, the pesky Edomites would come in and loot the cities that were being destroyed by other nations. They, while they, they were sort of kicking them while they were down, so to speak. 
Um, so the sins of Edom along uh, looting was another one. Um, number six, the sins of Edom uh, hindering the escape of the Jews. Whenever the nations would come and try to crush the Jews and the, the Jews were running for their lives, listen to what the Edomites did. Verse 14, thou shouldest have stood in the, uh, pardon me, neither should thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his, that is the Lord's, that did escape. Neither should have thou hast delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of their distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done to you. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. So when the Jews were running for their lives from whoever, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, or whatever conquering nation was coming, these horrible Edomites would find the running away Jews. There's a story, do you remember when Jeremiah and the leader of Jerusalem that was left, there was a tiny remnant of Jews after the 586 attack of Jerusalem. Do you remember they tried to escape, but some Edomites came and captured Jeremiah and the group and took them for a while. And then they got thumped and then they went to Egypt. If you remember, there's a little sideline story where the Edomites came and pesky, you know, took Jeremiah captive for, for a few minutes. Um, that's, that's the stuff that they did. They, they just were constantly a burr under the saddle, so to speak, to, of the Jews. Um, so trying to hinder their escape. Number seven, and the final sin of Edom that is noticed is what we're gonna, um, oh, by the way, Galatians 6, 7, what, this, is, this is what the Lord says to them, you know, what's, be not deceived, God is not mocked, for what's, whatsoever man soweth, that's what he's also gonna reap. And that's what the Lord said to the Edomites about this, doing uh, this to the Jews when they were trying to escape. He said, that same thing's gonna happen to you. Um, whatsoever man sows, that, that will they also reap. Well, the sins of Edom, number seven, drunken celebration. Um, not only were they rejoicing uh, that we saw in verse 12, but then they'd, they'd get sloshed and have a party to celebrate the destruction of the Jews. Verse 16, it says, for as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink and they shall swallow down and they shall be as though they had not been. That's a fancy way of saying they're gonna drink themselves to death. Um, and that's what the Lord predicts for the, the Edomites. Now this is pretty much doom for Edom. And you're saying, Brett, doom and gloom for Edom. Okay, got it. Now, the last part of this, uh, there's some hope. Uh, as we've seen the seven sins of Edom, now we kind of shift gears in verse 17 and talk about a, a bit of hope, and I love this. Verse 17, but upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Oh my, this verse, we could, we could have done a whole sermon just on verse 17. Um, first of all, um, when is deliverance actually gonna be on Mount Zion? And not just any deliverance, this says Mount Zion, and, and Zion's another name for Jerusalem and the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So it says there's gonna be deliverance and there shall be holiness. When will there be holiness on Mount Zion? Anybody wanna jump in on that one? Right, when Jesus returns. Christ is gonna come in his second coming and rule and reign from Jerusalem on Mount Zion. Um, so this is a great prophecy about the millennial kingdom that's coming. Even in our time, it's in the future. There's hope. Even though it's way down the road from Obadiah's time, there's still hope coming for Jerusalem. But notice it says, and their house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. You Bible students recognize this, possess your possessions. Um, because the Lord kept telling the Jews, Jews, 
I want you to possess your possessions and, and specifically the promised land. Go in and possess the promised land that I've promised you. Now, um, I, I don't have much time, so I'm gonna try to do this fast, but um, if you look at a map of Israel, which is kind of interesting, um, right here is technically modern day Israel. Uh, the Arabs call them the dagger that splits the whole Arab world. That's, it kind of looks like a knife, they, they say, and it splits all the Arab worlds. Um, that's the way they look at the Jews. But did you know that um, the possessions in Numbers, the book of Numbers says, possess your possession. Um, and here's the definition. The book of Numbers gives us the outline of the promised land that God says, this will be all of your land at some point in the future. Was it this that we see today? Not even close. You wanna know where Israel possessed more land than any other time? Was um, um, during the reign of Solomon. So I'll show you what Solomon's reign. If you kind of look at this map, that green area is, the, is where Solomon possessed at the peak of Israel's history. But that's not even all the land. In fact, did you know that when Solomon did this, it was, it was like one-tenth of the promised land that God promised the children of Israel. If you read the book of Numbers, there's a very clear definition from the Nile River in Egypt all the way up to Euphrates River, and then there's some north and south boundaries. If you draw a line of, the, of God's promise, this is the, the promised land according to the book of Numbers. Isn't it funny the world says, Israel doesn't have a right to exist. They don't have a right to be in their land. Uh, they're occupiers and you know, blah, blah, blah. But as, as, when all is said and done, this will be um, the size of Israel when? The millennial kingdom. When Christ comes and takes over, he's, he's gonna uh, possess their possession. That's the language of the book of Numbers in verse 17 reminds us of that. Even though Israel's never really possessed their possession, the Lord says, I will do that uh, there in verse 17. Kind of cool, kind of neat. Um, so verse 18, it goes on and says, and the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. That's, that's a good thing. Um, and the house of Esau for stubble. When you got stubble, that means they're gonna, the flame's gonna burn it. Um, and they shall kindle in them and devour them. There shall be not any remaining of the house of Esau for the Lord hath spoken. When the Lord speaks something, it's a done deal. The Edomites are toast. Verse 19, and they of the south shall possess the Mount of Esau and they shall, and the plain of the Philistines, that's in Gaza Strip today. Um, and um, they, they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. That's the West Bank, by the way, uh, which is interesting. Um, the fields of Samaria and Benjamin shall possess, they shall, Benjamin shall possess Gilead. That's everything east of the Jordan River, that giant area from Jordan all the way over to Iraq and uh, that region. The Lord says they shall possess all of that. Um, and, uh, and the captivity of Jerusalem, which is its uh, Seraphad, uh, shall possess the cities of the south. Some people say that's Europe. When the Jews fled to Europe, they'll come back. Uh, Seraphad might be Spain. There's some people talking about the Spanish Jews that were there coming back into the land. That's a whole other topic. But I love verse 21, and saviors shall come upon Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. Who wins? Yeah, it's not just the Lord, but the word here, notice it's all capital letters when it says Lord. Whenever you see that in your Bible, capital L-O-R-D, those little capitals, that means it's legitimately, specifically the word Jehovah, uh, the, God's name. So it says here, um, the, the kingdom will ultimately be Jehovah's. So as we wrap it up, 
what do we learn? Things to learn from Obadiah. Really quick, just a few things. Number one, um, what happens to those that reject God's word and blow off God's people and rebel with foolish pride? Destruction. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before. Now watch out for pride and arrogance. The Edomites are a symbol uh, as, as a nation of what not to do. Let us learn the lesson of humility as a people group, as a nation. Number two, don't be surprised when the ungodly prosper for a season. The Edomites were very prosperous and the Jews, remember the psalmist in Psalm 73, oh Lord, why do the wicked prosper? And he kind of moans about that for a whole chapter. But then at the end of Psalm 73, he says, but, but then I saw their end. Just like the Edomites, they, they lived large for 400 years, but then eventually they ended in doom. Um, you might say, Brett, I don't like it that so many people are more successful and the wicked are prospering. I mean, look at it. They, all these wealthy people, Bill Gates, Beyonce, <laughs> Oprah, Soros, Bezos, Musk. Come on, I'm a godly person. Hey, the wicked can prosper and the Bible talks about that, but, but it's not about that. Um, we, we, we see their end, the wicked who doesn't follow the Lord and doesn't believe in God, they're going down eventually. This life on earth is but a vapor. You and I have eternal life to look forward to with the Lord where he's gonna rule and reign forever. And then thirdly, Obadiah's book underscores the fact that God is just. And it's all gonna come out in the wash. God's gonna make righteousness prevail. And when it's all said and done, we'll all say righteous and true are his judgments. Um, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30 says, for we know him that hath said, vengeance belongeth to me, I will recompense or I will repay, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Edomites blew this off and they got destroyed. Deliverance through Jesus Christ is the way to be saved, to follow Jesus, to believe in God's word. By the way, the one who responds in obedience to the grace of God has everything to gain, but the person who spurns his grace in pride has everything to lose. Um, one of the lessons and the final lesson we learn is, man, follow the Lord, believe in his son, Jesus Christ, and be saved. And then we have salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But the Edomites just totally ignored that and they ended up destroyed. Don't be that person, but repent of your sins and follow Christ and be saved. Amen? Amen. Lord, as we uh, close up this book, a book of the Bible, Lord, we pray that you would seal it in our hearts, help us to learn the lessons from the Edomites, Lord, these people that you mention over and over again as what not to do. Um, humble us, Lord, help us to see the error of our way and the deception of pride. Um, help us to follow your word and to submit to you and, and truth and be saved. Lord, I pray your blessing upon these who've taken time to go through this book that they might have good fruit from this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.